0: Happy November to you. Can you believe it? It's already November. Look forward to seeing those mustaches and beards grow real long over the next month. Uh, I want to echo the words of Pastor Marty a couple minutes ago. Thank you so much for all of you who participated this past week at Trunk or Treat. Uh, It was really a unique and fun night. I mean, it rained, and so we packed a bunch of people in here, uh, lined the hallways. It was hot, it was sticky. But why do we do things like that? Uh, We do things like that because they're a great way to express love and care for the community around us. Uh, To cast the shadow of Old North in this community uh, in hopes that it creates some relational connection. And in in hopes that there's opportunity for people to grow uh, in their knowledge of who the Lord Jesus is. And so thank you so much. You guys exercise great hospitality uh, to our community on Wednesday night. I want to ask you if you would pray for uh, us, for me, and for us around the church this upcoming week. There's, uh, this week we are hosting a regional event uh, called the Simeon Trust Workshop. Forty-five pastors are coming in from uh, throughout the region uh, to continue to grow in and refine their skills in preaching. And so it's a great way for us to encourage other churches uh, and to invest in other churches. And it's a ton of work, uh, good work, but hard work. And so pray for us this week and pray for those pastors and those churches specifically uh, as you think of them. Uh, It's it's a joy to open the Bible with you today. I want to ask you to grab a a book of the Bible there, open to the book of Galatians. Uh, You can find that copy of the scriptures in the pew in front of you. And as we do... Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that expresses your kindness to us in so many ways. We pray today that as we explore your word, that you would encourage us with the truths that are in it, and that you would give us an increased confidence in our standing with you and an increased boldness in the world around us. We pray. Amen. I wonder if you had the opportunity to change families if you would. Don't raise your hand. I can't choose to be part of somebody else's family even if I want to be. The family has to choose. I could say that I want to be part of your family. And you might say, we don't want you to be part of our family. I could say that I want to be part of Bill Gates' family. I mean, after all, he's exceptionally bright. He's one of the richest people in the world. He's incredibly generous. And there would be certain benefits to me to be part of his family. However, I can't make him adopt me. That's not my choice to make. I'd have to become part of his family only if it was on his terms. The same is true with God. In this book of Galatians, we see that God has been laying out the terms of becoming part of his family. And the terms are really quite simple. The terms are faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus are the terms to become part of God's family. Through faith and faith alone in Jesus... You become part of the family of God. And last week we saw in Galatians chapter 3, the promise of God to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus and therefore extended to all of those who would put their faith in Jesus. And that God would relate to you, not based on your performance, but that God would relate to you based on his promise. And that is a wonderful and encouraging reality. And I just want to encourage you and commend you for sticking with us through that last chapter of Galatians. It was certainly one of the more technical sections of the book. A little complicated in its nature. But this week, as we turn to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the hard work pays off and you get the reward. The reward is that we get to see the best benefits of God's promise applied to us through Jesus. And so with that, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Today, we're going to pick up a little bit of overlap from last week. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26 through the first part of chapter 4. And this is what Paul says. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. As sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There are a lot of benefits for you to be in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. In this passage, we see three exceptional benefits. The first one we see right away in verse 27, and that is that we are clothed with Christ. We talked briefly about this last week. It says in verse 27, look at it with me, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What Paul isn't saying there is that baptism is the mechanism by which God saves us. The whole message of the book of Galatians is that the mechanism of salvation is faith and faith alone in Jesus. But baptism is the outward expression of that faith. It's the following obedience of that faith. It's the message to the world around you that I identify with Christ. It's like wearing clothing in which you put on Christ. And there's some really neat realities of that. And the first one is Identity. I don't know how you think about your identity. Your family heritage. Your job. The success or failures of your children. The nature of your marriage. The house that you live in. The material possessions you have. Or even your looks. And your clothing. But when you are clothed with Christ... Through faith, there is a fundamental change in your identity. No longer are you a Kropolinski, first and foremost, <laughs> and no longer are you a tiger, first and foremost. You are a Christian. The core of who You are and what defines you is changed as you are clothed in Christ. (laughs) Another aspect of this clothing in Christ is the aspect of imitation. If I were to go home this evening and turn on a certain football game of a certain undefeated football team, and sit down on my couch to watch that game. But before I did, I was to put on a jersey of that certain undefeated football team. To be in the spirit. What do you think my son, who's four years old, would do? The first thing he would do is rebuke his sister for being a Browns fan. and the, Because one of you did that to her. And the second thing... That he would do is run upstairs as fast as he can, and he'd open up all his drawers and he'd fling all the clothes until he found the jersey of this undefeated football team that I was wearing, and he'd put it on and he'd run downstairs and he'd sit on the couch right next to me and imitate me. Because that's what children do with their fathers. When you are clothed in Christ, there's a wonderful element of imitation that begins to happen. You get to know him and you want to be like him. And as you want to be like him, you start to act like him. And as you start to act like him, you actually start becoming like him. Through this new identity and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Another aspect of being clothed with Christ is the acceptability that comes. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But when you are clothed with Christ, and that's another way to say that when God looks at you, he sees the work and the person of his son Jesus. That he doesn't look at you in terms of your old identity that he doesn't look at you in terms of your performance. That he doesn't look at you in terms of your dirty, sinful nature. But that he looks at you in terms of the righteousness of his son. And you become acceptable to him in all of the best types of ways. Because you're united with Jesus and clothed with him. And so this is a beautiful and wonderful benefit. your clothing in Christ to the world around you and to the Father himself as a result of faith. The second benefit we see in verse 28 is that we become one with other people, with other brothers in Christ. Look at verse 28 with me. He says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. He's speaking to those who are Christians, and he's mentioning to them three categories of people. Neither Jew nor Greek, that's the category of race. Neither slave nor free, that's the category of rank in our society or class, you might call it. And the category of male and female, which is obviously the category of gender. It's not surprising that he chooses these three categories, rank, race, and gender. Because as you consider human history and maybe even your own experience, it's these three categories that are some of the biggest dividing lines among humanity in this life. Race, rank, and gender. In the ancient world, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles as dirty, as unclean, as unworthy of God. I mean, after all, they, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they were the physical children of Abraham. They were the ones who had seen the plagues in Egypt and been delivered from the slavery there. They were the ones who were brought through the wilderness and received the Old Testament law. They were the ones who received the promised land through the miraculous work of God in victorious battle, if there was any race that thought themselves to be spiritually superior and more worthy to receive the blessings and promises of God than the rest of humanity, it was the people of Israel, it was the Jews. Likewise, free people obviously looked down on slaves. (laughs) as second-class humans, and not worthy of what God would give. I mean, after all, slaves couldn't provide for themselves, and they could not decide for themselves. They were beholden to their masters. And throughout history, men have been considered the dominant gender in traditional cultures, and women have been relegated To something lower than men, the men are physically stronger, typically, and in the ancient mind, the one who is stronger is the one who is superior. Race, rank, and gender—the major dividing lines of human relationship. But listen to verse twenty-eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the implications of this, even for us today, is wonderful. And so it got me thinking. What are some of the major things that separate people today? What are some of the major dividing lines in relationship? I wonder what you would say. Race, rank, and gender? Paul's not so far off in our contemporary application here. I think if you look at cultures of the world today and even our own, those three still hold true as major dividing lines against p- people. And as I thought about that for some time, and as I asked some of you what you thought some of the dividing lines were, in these days, in this contemporary cultural moment, you might say there's one dividing line that's becoming ever more clear And that is the dividing line of politics as well. You know, we live in a time right now where the political divisions in our culture are so strong that it is becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to genuinely have a give-and-take conversation about ideas, political ideas, without that conversation immediately devolving into some kind of personal attack or assumption of poor motives. This is modeled for us on the world stage as we look at uh, both our Congress and the President in different instances. And we know that as we see those interactions and dialogues that when the microphones are on and the cameras are on, they're playing to the camera to try to make their point all the more. We know that some of those congressmen who are just absolutely, brutally, personally attacking one another are actually friends when the cameras are off. And we know that others aren't. (laughs) And yet, when that's the model for political discourse in a society, What happens when the camera is off doesn't trickle down into us normal folks. And so all you have to do is to walk into a store and start talking about politics before the temperature rises. Or log on to social media, which for some reason some people still think is a great place to debate politics. And see the types of things that people say to each other, even Christians this was illustrated to me a couple weeks ago, three, four, or five weeks ago now, when I was uh, flying back here from Washington D.C. and I sat down on the plane uh, next to uh, a younger African American man, real big guy, probably 25 years old, and we started talking with each other. And as we started talking with each other, uh, I liked this guy really quickly, and I think he liked me, and he was asking about restaurants to go to in Pittsburgh, and, and, and we had a couple of laughs, and, and the flight took off, and we went on our way. And about halfway through our short flight, he uh, was spying on me and looking at my phone, and he noticed that, he was, that I was listening to the Wall Street Journal podcast, and he got really excited really quickly. And he said, Hey, hey, what do you think? I said, What do I think about what? He goes, I'm sorry for spying on you, but I was look I saw what podcast you we were listening to, and what do you think? Do you think that that Trump is gonna be impeached? And I said, Honestly, I don't really think so. And he said, wait a minute. Now this is a big dude on a small plane, and like, so we're sitting like this anyway, and he's like, wait a minute. Are you a Trump supporter? And you've got to decide how you're going to play that in this day and age, right? And so I said to him, I want this conversation to continue, because now it's about to get interesting. And so, um, before he was just talking about video games, but so I said to him, well, you know, there There are um, a number of things I really like about what our president has done. And there are some things that I don't like about what our president has done. And I'm certainly not a fan of how his political opponents lined up and started talking about impeachment before he even took office. (laughs) That causes some skepticism in my mind about the legitimacy of some of these things. And he said, okay, all right. Because if you told me that you were a Trump supporter, you know I'd have to make fun of you, right? I knew this guy for 10 minutes. And immediately the line was drawn. The political division is strong. I think about a couple weeks ago, uh, a very well-known preacher made some comments uh, in a question and answer session that was recorded. And that recording made its way to the internet and social media blew up with commentary about uh, how terrible his comments were, and other people were defending his comments, and, and on down the line. And as I was sort of observing this from a distance, I, I, I was looking at the social media feed of one of my friends, and she uh, had one of her friends that commented on it, and she said this. This was her words. I am so sick of listening to old white men preachers. I have discarded them some time ago and I will never listen to them again. What does that sound like? Race, rank, and gender. And yet, one of the radical features of a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus is that People are united and their identity becomes such that it supersedes the typical dividing lines of our human experience. And there's a lot of ways that we can apply this and think about encouraging applications to it. There are a couple of very common misapplications of this reality as well. I think Galatians 3.28 is one of the most misapplied verses in the New Testament epistles. And so let me just give you just two of those misapplications. Misapplication number one is is to say that, well, Paul is trying to distinguish or is trying to eliminate all of our differences. Paul is not trying to install here a classless, rankless, apolitical, non racial, androgynous society. (laughs) It's not possible, number one, and it's not genuine, number two. He's not saying that the differences that we hold, the place that you've come from, your rank, race, gender, or even political affiliation, aren't important, that they don't in some ways inform your experiences. That somehow we can create a church or a society or a culture that everybody looks the same and sounds the same and does the same. But what he is saying is that the things that divide us are now superseded by an overwhelming thing that unifies us. And when those things fall to the floor, we can appreciate the diversity with a wonderful unity. Here's misapplication number two. Misapplication number two is that some people will say that here it's very clear that Paul is trying to reject the idea of gender or gender roles. Now this is a very contemporary conversation for us as you see in our contemporary moment that some people have this idea that gender is a social construct in your mind and you get to choose which gender you are regardless of your biological parts and pieces and some people will even use this verse see Paul said no male or female you can be whatever gender you want or some others will try to use this to say well that there's no distinct gender roles in the bible or in society today that we shouldn't have them and so We should not focus on that any longer. But I think what we see in the Bible from the beginning of time is the clear distinction of male and female as a good thing. And a clear distinction as the roles of male and female as a good thing. In Genesis 3 and 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Galatians 5 particularly talk about some of those gender roles in the home and in the church. And they indicate that men and women are equal in their value before God, but different in their roles. So what we see, what does this mean? It means that in the eyes of God, the favor bestowed to a person is not based on race, rank, or gender, or even political affiliation. It's based on the fact that they're recipients of the promise to be justified through faith in Jesus. And for our church, the implications of that are wonderful. It means that the marks of our fellowship uh, is this equality of value among us. It means that every single one of you holds worth and value just as much as the person next to you. It means that those of us in our congregation who struggle financially, or who are very modestly paid, should not be viewed as inferior or made to feel inferior. Or that the wealthy among us must not be resented because of their means. It means that we rejoice in the diversity of people that are here, and the backgrounds that we come from, and the variety of jobs that we have, and the different families that we're a part of, and we celebrate, even in the midst of that diversity, a wonderful unity in Jesus. Now you say to yourself, Nick, I'm looking around Old North, and I don't really know how diverse of a place it is. You might, some of you might look at Old North and say, well, it's in a fairly wealthy suburb of this particular region of the country. I look around and I see a majority of white people. So I don't know what kind of diversity you're talking about. But did you know that on any given Sunday in our church, there are at least 15 different nations represented just among this body in Nowheresville, Ohio that is not a destination place and that diversity is not even just among the reality of our countries of origin but it comes in the realities of our human experiences, our economics, status, our jobs, and all the things that can have the potential to divide us. That God brings a diverse group of people together and he blesses them and makes them one people. And that's a wonderful reality. And so you take a step back and you say, this is what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians, at least in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He says, Abraham was justified by his faith in God. Be like Abraham, have faith in God. And as you do, you will receive the promises of God to be blessed and justified. And you will be considered one of Abraham's children, and thus one of God's children, regardless of your race, regardless of your rank, regardless of your gender. And that leads to the third and final blessing we talk about today. And that is the blessing of being called and positioned as a son of and an heir. Look at verse 26. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Look at verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, heirs, according to the promise. Why does Paul call us sons instead of sons and daughters? Some of us might feel like he's being insensitive here or leaving some of us out. Why sons? We'll talk more about this in a moment, but in the ancient world, the sons were the ones who received the promise. They received the inheritance. The sons were the ones who received the honor. And women were considered second-class citizens. And so rather than leaving women out, Paul is doing just the opposite. He is giving an incredibly radical message to say that there are younger sons who might not receive the same inheritance as the older sons. And guess what? Now you're all sons receiving inheritance. And there are daughters or women who might receive no inheritance just simply because of their gender, but now they have the inheritance of sons. He's incredibly radical in saying that women are elevated in their position in this kingdom of God. And we see two realities of this adoption as sons is faith through faith in Christ. We see the reality of status and we see the reality of experience. Here's the reality of status. The reality of status is the reality of adoption. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and on. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also were children, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, this is how we're described. We're described as children under a guardian who don't understand what it means to be heirs. And we're described as slaves to the elementary principles of the world, that's a way of saying, based on what he has already said, that our sinful propensities enslaves us under the law of God, which makes those sins known, and holds us there. Because we can never fulfill this law perfectly, we're a slave to this sin, because the standard is too high. The core of that is our status is the status of slaves. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you are a slave, period. But this is why Jesus came. Look at verse five. Two clear reasons. To redeem those under the law or to purchase slaves. (laughs) so that we would be adopted as sons. Jesus came to purchase slaves so that they would be adopted as sons. In the ancient world, if you didn't have offspring of your own, or if a servant had a, became a particularly close to a family member, the family could gift that servant Sonship. (laughs) The gift of sonship is a status change. It's legal in its nature. It points to the relational change, of course, but it points to the legal reality that makes a person an heir to an inheritance. A person was born with no rights, No relationship, no inheritance, but the master took them in, clothed them, fed them, and then bestowed upon them the ultimate gift, the family name. (laughs) And with the family name, the family identity. And with the family identity, the family fortune. And that is what God does for us. J.I. Packer says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven. He's brought in for supper and he's given the family name. Slaves become adopted sons through faith in Christ. Slaves become sons through faith in Christ. But just because you have a legal status change doesn't mean automatically that your experience will change immediately. And so God gives us his spirit. Look at verse six. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Holy Spirit provides what we would call the experiential change for the Christian. If adoption is the legal change, the Holy Spirit is the way in which you feel that change. Without the Spirit, you might be like the little girl who won't stop crying because the arm of her favorite doll was ripped off by her younger brother. That never happens in my house. You could come to this little girl and you could tell her that a distant relative has just willed to her, and she has just inherited $25 million. And how is she going to respond to that? She's going to keep crying about the doll. It's not going to matter to her. She doesn't have the cognitive ability to process what $25 million means, Or the foresight and life experience to see the significance that she could have tons of better dolls than the one that she has right now. All she cares about is the doll that's right in front of her that has an arm disconnected. But God, adopted son, gives the spirit who helps us to experience the reality of inheritance. And he does that by allowing us to access God by, it says, crying out. Crying out to God and in joy and in difficulty and in happiness and in pain. He does that for us through intimacy that we can refer to God as Abba Father, which is a childlike dependence upon God to say, Papa or Daddy. For God to adopt us as sons is to take us out of slavery to sin, but that's just one side of the coin. The other side is that he gives us all the love and honor that he gives to his own son, Jesus. He treats you like you did all the things that Jesus did, and his loving kindness and ongoing blessing is upon you. Slaves become sons through faith in Christ. This means for you that you can have confidence. You can have confidence when you go to God. This means that when you have sinned again and are utterly ashamed, you can still go to him because he looks at you as his son. This means that you can have boldness Because God is enacting his divine plan and agenda in the world. And you are a part of that. And he never would allow his son to, his child, his loved one, to be somehow off the rails of his plan, unknown, hidden, to suffer in the corner alone. You can have confidence and boldness. And it means that you can have intimacy. The same way you want your children to come to you. God all the more desires that intimacy with you as his child. Slaves become sons through faith in Christ. Tim Keller says it in a helpful way. When he says being completely conformed to the likeness of God, of God's son, is something that we look forward to typically in the future, but is actually a transformation that's already happening now, even slowly. Being adopted among many brothers is something that we have right now. The minute you become a Christian, you have intimacy of relationship, you have unconditional relationship, you become wealthy because everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished is transferred to you. You become Beautiful and spiritually rich in him. Some people are put off by Paul's language about being adopted as sons because they view it as gender insensitive. They argue, wouldn't it be better if we were called sons and daughters of God? It might be, but it would miss the whole point. Some time ago, a woman... Keller writes, help me understand this. She was raised in a non-Western traditional culture. There was only one son in the family, and it was understood in that culture that he would receive the honor and the provisions of the family, and she would receive nothing. (laughs) In essence, the message was, he's the son, you're just the girl, and that's the way that it was. But one day, she was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings. She suddenly realized how much of a revolutionary claim this was. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. When Paul said out of his own traditional cultures that we are all sons in Christ, he was saying that there's no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ... And become a Christian, you receive all the benefits of a son in a traditional culture. Now, as a white male, you might not have thought that much about the beauty of this subversive and revolutionary promise and how it raises to the highest honor all of those in Jesus by adopting them as sons. Our adoption means that we are loved like Christ is loved. Like we are honored like he is honored. Every one of us, no matter what. Your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. In fact, your bad circumstances will only help you and even claim the beauty of that promise all the more. The more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like him in actuality. Paul is not promising you better life circumstances. He's promising you a far better life. (laughs) He's promising you a life of spiritual greatness. He's promising you a life of joy. He's promising you a life of humility. He's promising you a life of nobility. He's promising you a life that goes on forever. Slaves. Become sons through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, encourage us and increase our confidence your work because of your son and as a result of faith Amen